Quite often, I get to the airport and uh, and I'm ready to go. You know, I find excuses as to why it's good enough, and and that's not good. So I know my own personality. Hey everyone, it's Ryan here with Cardinal Aviation. Welcome to episode number 27 of the Audio Briefings. I'm so excited today to bring you this interview. And it's an interview I've been looking forward to doing for a really long time. And uh, it's one of these guests that just have so much to offer. And I'm hoping this this isn't going to be our last, uh, last time with him. Now, when it comes to aircraft accidents, uh, incidents, occurrences, whatever you want to call them, nobody really wants their name associated basically with a plane crash. Uh, that is except for Bill Yearwood. And Bill Yearwood has dedicated his life as a lead investigator with the Transportation Safety Board to find answers, to uh, help implement change, and to really change the way we do business. And a lot of the things that you and I take for granted in our everyday aviating are thanks to the work that Bill and Bill's colleagues have done over the years uh, to really see uh, gaps and places that we can improve uh, in an effort to save lives and enhance aviation safety. So this is going to be a little bit of a longer one. We're going to be buttoned up against 40 minutes, but I'm going to urge you to stay with me till the end. And if you can't do that right now, come back another time when you can listen to the whole thing because Bill is one of these you know, aviation wizards or gurus that uh, really do deserve 40 minutes of your time because uh, it'll be probably the best 40 minutes you'll spend all week. And, and with that, I'm going to cut straight to my talk with Bill. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so I'm joined here today with Bill Yearwood. And Bill is, uh, I believe, the former lead investigator for the Transportation Safety Board uh, out here in the Pacific region. I got to know Bill uh, back in 2011. Hard to believe it's almost 10 years now. Um, after uh, an accident that involved a close friend of mine and Bill uh, headed up that investigation and we spent quite a bit of time uh, talking uh, about the accident, about communicating with family members and um, Bill's somebody who has been the face of the TSB uh, in the media uh, and somebody who we see a lot of but usually during uh, really difficult times and I'm really fortunate to have Bill with me today uh, so that we could talk aviation safety and specifically about general aviation. Thanks, Bill. Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to be here. Um, so I kind of introduced you there, but I, I'm kind of known for not getting it 100% correct. So why don't you just kind of fill us in with who you are and, uh, you know, what is or, or was your occupation there? Well, I'm a pilot first off and, um, uh, you know, turn aviation accident investigator, and now I'm retired, but still doing a little bit of of work that I'm uh, where I can help reduce risk. Um, I, uh, you know, lost a bunch of friends in the industry, and uh, and um, when a good friend died, I stepped in to help his widow find out what went wrong, and and um, as it turned out. Uh, you know, sharing knowledge and step by step, I ended up working for the TSB and leading their team here in BC. And uh, I guess that that answers how you became an investigator. But so you, your friend experienced an accident, uh, you you wanted to do something about it. How did you go about actually becoming a member of the Transportation Safety Board team? Well, 
um, a few different steps. I ended up joining Transport Canada um, after doing some consulting work, helping uh, council in aviation accidents and um, coroner's inquest, etc. And uh, whilst I was at Transport Canada, I was involved with system safety and as an observer, um, I took part in some TSB investigations. Um, and then uh, I transferred over to the TSB as the, um, as the manager there. And that really fit, you know, all of my uh, flying experience and, and um, knowledge of the industry uh, helped me um, develop a relationship with the industry and, and um, help what I think uh, TSB work well in, in the region. And I think, uh, I mean, for us common folk in the industry, uh, and especially those people that are outside of aviation, uh, oftentimes like Transport Canada and TSB are used interchangeably. Could you maybe just explain what the TSB does and what the difference is between the TSB and Transport Canada? Well, that's good to identify. The, the TSB um, is an independent uh, agency that's, that uh, is there to find the cause of an accident or an occurrence and um, share that information to help reduce risk, um, make recommendations when, when we or the TSB feels strong that those need to be implemented, but does not have a regulatory role or any power to enforce any of, of its recommendations. That is up to Transport Canada. Transport Canada is a regulator um, uh, so they investigate to find things that are when people break the regulations, not to find the cause of an accident. Um, so there's, we're really different, but we work together in some way because uh, often Transport Canada needs to take the action. And so they have a look in when we're investigating to see if there's something they need to do right away to, to mitigate the risk. And, and one of the things that I've always found interesting from reading your reports um, is that, I mean, the TSB's number one thing is to be completely fact-based. And if they don't have a fact to, to back something up, it's basically inconclusive uh, or there's no statement made on it. But as an experienced industry pilot, I mean, you're investigating accidents you must have opinions on what may or must have happened but how hard is it to to stick to fact and and not let your kind of personal experience and um, assumptions uh, cloud your investigations well once you get into the to the rhythm or the rule it's not that hard um, we learn very quickly that we've got to back up everything that that uh, we investigate and um it's putting the puzzle together. And if there's a piece missing, um, it's uh, difficult to make uh, leaps. Sometimes there's enough pieces to, to uh, do an analysis and say this is the most likely cause or probable. And in some cases, uh, in a weak case, we say that it's possible that this happened. It's good to share that um, that information, because if you just stop and say we don't know, then it doesn't do any good for anybody. Um, uh, but the facts um, at the time 
limited by uh, the tools you have and how much you spend with the um, accident and the people that are involved. So, uh, you know, in some cases with um, flight data recorders and tapes, et cetera, uh, we can get down um, really quickly in some cases when there's nothing, you know, you just find a smoking hole in the ground and, and um, it, it takes a while, but we've learned how to, how to do that. And, and in um, some cases, remarkably, we find out exactly what happened from a smoking hole in the ground. That's uh, that's incredible. And, and fascinating all at the same time. Um, what, so kind of two more TSB type questions and then we're going to get into flight safety as it pertains to general aviation. Um, but I just want to have like kind of the full picture here before we get into that. So, uh, your, your typical two, two cliche questions there. So what was the most rewarding, uh, aspect of being with the TSB? And then I can imagine, but what, what was the most, uh, difficult aspect of being with the TSB? Well, it's very rewarding when you find the problem, you are able to to come up with with a solution that that is um, um, doable, you know, fits with with the community, and you uh, convince the aviation community to make the change. That's the most rewarding thing when you see that things have changed as a result of your investigation and your work to to share that information and and uh, share what what um, is apparently the best way to fix it and that changes it's very rewarding and i mean i would imagine that for the most part um people are willing to accept the change if it increases safety but i guess there's always the the dollar figure that comes in if it's gonna if it's gonna cost people money i'm, I'm sure sometimes the discussion comes up well well i want it to be safer but i don't want it to be safer if it costs me that much that, that must be frustrating to to deal with i can imagine that is and and you know it's it's um, interesting what we find, and and sometimes you have good corporate citizens that step up, uh, manufacturers that volunteer to make changes uh, even before the investigation is done. Once they see things, and you know uh, we have a Canadian manufacturer now, Viking, that's you know stands out uh, to be one of those good corporate citizens. Sometimes it's frustrating when you know a manufacturer is holding back because of the fear of lawsuits and, and their actions being taken as an admit, admission of, of um, liability. And, and that's very frustrating because whilst, whilst that's happening, uh, the rest of the users of that equipment are at risk. And uh, we see after, you know, court cases are settled, uh, all of a sudden the manufacturer um, makes a change or Whilst they're doing that, those parts are not available. They just happen to disappear. But uh, but it's it's good, and the families really um, uh, hang on to that that something is being done. And the longer it takes, it's harder on them. And then the other the flip side of that, the most difficult part of uh, being with the TSB. Well, of course, um, working with grieving families is always hard, and. Um, you know, uh, one can't help take on uh, their frustrations when the system lets them down, and that, in in, in a way, drives the passion. Uh, uh, what it did for me 
to just work harder and make sure that things get changed. Um, sometimes it's difficult to get the bureaucrats in the capital region to act on things that just scare people and and um, not wait for blood to act. But even sometimes after there's blood, there's, um, you know, uh, people in the in the head office can be very conservative and and um, take their time, and that's sometimes frustrating. Okay, and when um, so I mean, you you dealt with commercial accidents, general aviation accidents. I mean, every every type of incident you can imagine. Um, when it came to general aviation accidents, uh, what were some of the the common themes that you would see come up repetitively in GA accidents? Like some areas that we can focus on. Well, um, stall accidents and poor mountain flying techniques uh, jump to mind. Um, the stall accidents are not limited to general aviation. We see them in in commercial aviation and in the airlines. You know, so so that but uh, it starts down in the small aircraft uh, from flying schools to general aviation, and um, and I think there's still uh, work to be done there to. Um, uh, stall awareness and and um, uh, you know better uh, training with regard to um, uh, caution warnings, etc. And um, I was asked this question by a listener a couple episodes ago, which actually is what prompt, prompted me to contact you because I knew you were the best person to answer this. And I, I can appreciate and understand that you're not going to have hard numbers and hard facts, which I know is a little bit outside of your, your, your normal since you're a facts based guy. But, um, it's, if we look at statistics, the, the accident rate per, let's say hundred thousand hours in Canada versus the United States is, uh, notably higher. Do you have any, uh, personal opinion as to why we might see, um, a higher incident of GA accident in Canada uh, per capita, per capita, per hour, whatever you want to call it, than yeah. than our neighbors to the a- south. Absolutely, I'll give you my <laughs> thoughts there, and then I, I want to go back on the on the GA accidents. But um, uh, the uh, comparison's not fair. Uh, GA pilots in the U.S. Um, uh, fly longer legs, and uh, once the takeoff is complete, the the time of risk is reduced and uh, until the landing phase but and and they're often flying um in controlled airspace many of them have instrument ratings so uh, hours accumulate in a less risky environment in canada a lot of the ga pilots uh, operate in uncontrolled airspace and into unserviced aerodromes you know whether it's uh, float planes or or um you know tail draggers hopping around into fields um so the risk is higher over a shorter time you know a better comparison would be to compare our yukon operations with the us's alaska operations and i think you'll find it a little bit a little closer in in um you know, accidents per hundred thousand hours. That makes sense. Uh, I, I hadn't thought about the the time of exposure of longer legs, kind of offsetting that. Where I mean, obviously, there's al- there's always risk, and we're always trying to manage risk. But the cruise portion is statistically the lowest risk, and if they're spending more time in cruise than I guess per hour, their risk is is lower. So that makes a lot of sense. You said you said you wanted to go back on something. 
Yeah, you know, one of the things that that um, uh, scares me a little bit about um, uh, training uh, with regard to stalls is that you know even even in the the um, TC's flight training guide, they suggest flying with the stall warning on during slow flight training. I kind of think that's crazy. You know, warnings require action immediately to remove the risk. And if you're flying around with a stall warning on, you don't have a stall warning and you are closest to the to the risk at that time. Um, so, you know, I, I think we should be training our pilots to react immediately to a stall warning. In in uh, some cases, the the, the time is you know there's a gap between the warning and the and the stall and Cessna will tell you it's it's about five to seven miles an hour, but that's in straight level flight. When you are in a, a turn or a steep turn, it's immediate and um, and when you add that to mountain flying where optical illusions trap pilots into getting close to the ground at at the peak of a pass or a saddle as they're trying to get through when they realize they're not going to make it they're usually very close to the ground and unfortunately humans the first response is to try and turn around and now you have a stall in a turn and the aircraft is pointing straight at the ground and and it's very um uh, well it's tragic it's most of those are unsurvivable so so i wanted to remind people that you know and make sure you got lots of uh, uh, room and space in the mountains, and you're far away from your stall, and um, and and that's a big, big um, uh, way to re- mitigate the risk. Now, I mean, correct correct me, and feel free to tell me I'm wrong because you are your your Yoda and the guru when it comes to this stuff. But um, when I have clients call me and say, Hey, I want to, you know, learn how to do the off airport landing type stuff on the gravel bars, you know, spot landing. Usually the first thing I tell them is, uh, before we do any of that, you need to one, be able to put your airplane exactly on a spot where you intend it plus 10 feet or minus zero. And the second thing is to get comfortable in the slow speed regime of your airplane. So would you say that's still valid advice? Just don't be doing it while you're flirting with the stall warning, like, uh, respect the stall warning, but still, be, I think people, a lot of people are scared of the, the slow, the slow, uh, part of the slow, slow end of the regime, uh, in their airplane. A lot of people I, I find fly faster than they need to. And I mean, airspeed is life. We can agree on that, but is there merit to being comfortable with your airplane on the slow side, uh, but not at the stall? Well, you know, I think that, that, um, absolutely when you have to get into a tight spot, you have to get aircraft down slow, and uh, you have to be comfortable with it. Um, I, I'm a advocate of uh, for those type of operations and having an um, angle of attack indicator because you can see how close you are, and you can see how much you need to go to get mm-hmm. back into control. Um, one of the things with um, that, you know, when you're operating on a, a an aircraft that is designed for for that slow flight and that short takeoff and landing, that's great. You know, but you you build your training and everything around that. What happens, unfortunately, is people take aircraft that were not really designed for that, add a bunch of of um, 
kits to them, SDCs, to make them get um, to the stall more comfortably. Uh, and they publish, say, okay, it, 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 this, you know, you hear people say, well, you can never stall this thing. Well, of course you can. <laughs> but what you've really done is you've paved the road to the cliff. Yeah. And and most aircraft will give you a nice warning when it's when it's getting uh, to the cliff. So now you're on the bumpy road before you hit the cliff, and and you can do something with it, whether it's a stall warning or or just the way the aircraft behaves. So we've seen that we've seen people with we've seen as many as six different mods to an aircraft to make it fly uh, better at slow, and and turned out that that they cancel each other out. You know, so so my advice was. If you want to spend some money to operate in tight areas and slow flight, invest in an angle of attack indicator and and um, and stick with that. Uh, keep yourself out of trouble. Great advice. Angle of attack indicator, shoulder restraints, absolutely, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, we're uh, we're on twenty one minutes here, and I could talk to you for an hour. Um, I got a couple couple more uh, questions for you if you're still good with that. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. Um, so I uh, wanted to talk, we talked mountain flying, we talked stall awareness. Um, do you want to talk real quick about VFR and IMC or inadvertent IMC? Well, yeah, you know, that's um, something that's, that is a, you know, known killer and it catches people, people that have instrument ratings, you know, uh, one thing to remember is that um, when you, go um imc ifr and i have to I, I use those two words when you're imc and you're following the instrument rules yeah. there's a lot of help around you and a lot of room built for you um, well not a lot but there's room built for you to uh, vary a little bit but if you stay within the the confines of the the rules um you can do a great job, IMC. You just have to be careful, of course, about icing and stuff like that. But, but as soon as you enter IMC in an environment that is not IFR, in other words, you're, you're not your aircraft's not equipped, you may not be trained, or or um, there is no approach. You're just um, uh, you know looking at a GPS and trying to figure your way around, you're in big trouble, you know? And, and you know, remember a lot of these GPS too, um, uh, as you scale down, the accuracy, uh, whilst it can be there, is actually not there because of memory. Uh, you know, they can't put in all that detail for the whole world, and you've just bought a unit for the whole world. Mm -hmm. and And often when you get down there, your whole screen is red, you know, because you're already below what the the GPS is trying to warn you not to be in. Um, so GPS, um, in a funny way, uh, helped us um, uh, find out where we are and help pilots feel confident that they're not embarrassed because they're not lost. But the GPS never... Uh, keeps you right side up and in control so it's it 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 has it's a double-edged sword you know so um i think i think uh, we've all we've all fell victim to that i mean you know i'll freely admit that uh i've made some decisions uh that you know 
in hindsight, well, at the time I knew were bad decisions as well, but it was just a circumstance of what was going on that I, without the, the tools of, you know, the tablet and the, the terrain awareness and the GPS, I would never have made otherwise, you know, 10, 15 years ago before we had all those tools. There's no way I would have been in that situation. And I, I've, I've <laughs> yeah. seen it happen to myself and I know it's happened to others where this technology has maybe made us a little braver than we otherwise should be. Yeah. And I, I, I sometimes like to relate to, to the common world where, you know, if you have four wheel drive, you get stuck further down the road. <laughs> and it's harder to get out you know? so, but uh so it does help you when the terrain doesn't get really bad but when it gets really bad um you, you're in deeper uh, so you know i i um like to say and remind uh particularly ga pilots you don't have to go you know there's um, um if it's a little inconvenient um that's all it is um and in in the commercial world there's pressures to to uh, get the job done you're paid to do this but but humans pilots um like to to be able to do what they said they can do and it's hard for us to say you know what i don't I, I'm not comfortable with this and I'm staying here. And that's the battle we all face. And I'm guilty of it too. I'm, I kind of set my goals before I get to the airport, you know, yeah. uh, because quite often I get to the airport and, um, and I'm ready to go. You know, I find excuses as to why it's good enough and, and that's not good. So I know my own personality there and I, I try and check the weather before I go and say, you know what, we ain't going today. Yeah. I remember like nine years ago, probably right around this time of year, we were sitting in your office in Richmond and you said something to me that, um, that I, I, I've lost count how many times I've repeated to other people saying, you know, I was sitting in, you know, Bill Yearwood, of course. Yeah. We know Bill. Yeah. The TSB guy from TV. I said, yeah, I was sitting in his office and he said this, uh, he said this to me and it stuck with me. Um, and, uh, it's probably affected my decision-making uh, on a couple instances. There's a couple other instances where maybe it should have more than it did, but either way, I like to pass it on. And one of the things you said to me was the number of times where there was a CFIT or controlled flight into terrain accident, and you guys arrived on scene eight, uh, 10, 24 hours later, and you're sitting there uh, again, like you said, there's a smoking hole, there's carnage, and you look up and it's, you know, scattered clouds or blue sky, and you're thinking, like, why the hell didn't this guy just wait 10 hours? We wouldn't be here right now. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. And uh, and when you start out, once you get going, um, uh, you adapt quickly to um, accepting lesser, um, uh, I would say, accepting more risk. Uh, lesser safety margins and uh, I always tell a little story about what we all experience when we're driving to work or something and you come to a stop sign and before you get there you have this nice idea of how uh, it's a nice drive and, uh, and hopefully there'll be a, no cars or big spaces between for me to get across this intersection you get there and it's busy and immediately your your um, uh, risk tolerance to to run through there drops and uh, you've ma- accepted a smaller hole and somebody pulls up behind you and, and they, and you see them in the rearview mirror and the pressure's on and, you know, <laughs> within 30 seconds, now you're darting through a spot that 
you decided you weren't going to do uh, when you were pulling up and you scare yourself. And, and, uh, and, you know, that goes on until there's a bad accident and, and, you know, blood is spilt and, and they put a traffic light up there Mm -hmm. and then the pressure is off, you know, everybody waits till it's green. So, and I relate that to aviation. When you have SOP, standard operating procedures, whether you're in GA or, or commercial, if you set some some hard fast goals that you stick to, the pressure is off, and and you don't fall into that thing where I'm I'm flying and well, uh, you know, two miles was good enough, uh, and then one mile I, I can still see. Next thing you know. Um, you know, a mile turns into half a mile and you're in trouble turning around. Uh, I had that, uh, uh, that discussion this morning with a client. He just got his instrument rating uh, a few weeks ago. I just, that was the story I told in the last episode. And I, we were talking weather last night and we got it back to what are the, what were the personal minimums that you set as soon as you did your ride and, and the weather today did not fit those. And so now he's going tomorrow and I'm really proud of him for, for doing that. And I think we need to see more of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I, I, Go back to the to the um, uh, old saying that that uh, you know we had a poster up when I was at a transport in in system safety about the superior pilot is one who uses his superior knowledge to avoid situations that may require superior skill you know and and you got to remember that that that's that's um, an easy thing to to pass on to your passengers when they're chomping at the bit and 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 uh, remind them of that. You really don't have to go. I'm I'm, I'm so good that I'm not going to go today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, well, I I want to just uh, I guess wrap it up. Two more quick things. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but you know we talked about flight training and stalls, and I mean I'm, we have to be one of the only industries. Um, where we have new pilots training new pilots. You know, we don't go to a hospital and you have your, you know, senior resident that's training all the new doctors. But in aviation, it's just how it is. Pilots get their license, they get their commercial, they get their instructor rating, and now they're teaching to get their experience up. Um, And inevitably, it does leave some holes. I mean, there's standards and the standards have to be met for a license to be issued. But do you feel that our training uh, for licenses is sufficient? And if whatever the answer is to that, what, what can people do better to make sure that they are safer going into the, the flying world once they've got a license? Well, with regard to sufficient, I would say it's somewhat, but I think there's, there's a, um, a big hole or two. And um, the, here in mountainous region, of course, that big hole is mountain flying training techniques. But the one part that I think, um, uh, you know, if you can't get high experience instructors to help, you know, in, in the junior training world, um, you can uh, spend more time or the instructors could spend more time um, looking at human factors and what you know, how the human behaves and, you know, they do a little bit of that in trying to, to figure out how the human learns. But um, what's missing in there quite a bit is, um, is and I, I didn't learn this until I was investigating, you know, when you start looking in a flight manual and you see things that, that are limitations, um, find out why that limitation is there. And, and you know, because 
they don't have room to put in the whole report from the test pilot as to why he doesn't want you to go beyond this. But let me tell you, I've talked to test pilots, and and when I find out um, why they they said you need um, this or don't go beyond this, it's pretty scary when they as test pilots went in that regime. I think, and, um, I think you just hit, hit something really important there where you're saying go find out the why because, I mean, I think – really often in you know today's 2020 in the world of instant gratification and i want to get it done fast i want to get it done easy and we have access to all these apps and question banks and uh i'm seeing more and more the method of studying for a license is i'm going to go through these question banks until i can answer enough questions right to pass the exam which is studying to pass an exam it's not studying to learn the material and um if we ask ourselves why we can force ourselves to understand the material and, and and know the subject matter. And as I've said before here is um, we should all have the discipline and the, the pride and the professionalism to become experts in our field, not just become people who were able to get a couple of multiple choice questions, right. And get a piece of paper. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, like I say, un- unfortunately, I learned a lot of this, um, in investigations and and uh, here's a simple one that's that if you have time to listen to uh, Cessna Caravan it it says uh, in the flight manual that if you're using type 2 de-icing fluid you can't use flaps for takeoff and and you know if you don't think about it you kind of say well how does that relate well how that relates is that um, if you use flaps you can get airborne before the, the type two fluid leaves the wings. So actually you're taking off in contaminated wings. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you retract the flaps, the aircraft stalls. So so flying with or taking off with no flaps allows that type two fluid to be uh, blown off mm-hmm. before you get airborne. And so just for <laughs> the people that don't know, type two de-icing fluid, basically what it is, is it can be applied to an aircraft that has a rotation speed higher than 85 knots, I believe is the number. Um, And it needs that that 85 knots of airflow over the wings to blow the de-icing fluid off so that the wings clean for takeoff. So that's what Bill's getting out there. Yeah, so that's an example of something that's that's just said in a manual and there might be other ones, you know, uh, uh, in, in a, in a flight manual, there, well, I should say there might be other. There's there's several. Most of them don't really explain why why they're there. They just tell you to do it. And we humans sometimes, if we can't can't understand it, we might ignore it. Say, we, well, I remember in the in the Lear 31, we had a limitation where you couldn't use flaps and spoilers at the same time. And it wasn't because <laughs> the airplane would stop flying. It was because the flap if the flaps went down, that was fine. But if you then pop the spoilers there was a big gaping gap in the wing from top to bottom and so much airflow going over it with all this wiring and tubing, you'd end up ripping it right out of the wing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, so, you know, getting back to, to flight training um, to augment the, the lack of experience uh, where your instructor is not somebody that's been out there and, and scared himself several times in, in the uh, commercial or operating world. Um, uh, you can augment that by, by going uh, and learning a little more detail um, of 
of the uh, limitations in in the flight manual and then and then stay within them uh, you don't want to be a test pilot once you're outside of those limitations you're a test pilot may sound cool but uh but when you're doing r&d you're doing what you don't know what you're doing and that's not so cool right on all right Bill, well i know that you and i could continue this for another half an hour i i unfortunately i'm up against the clock because i have to go to work uh and you are enjoying your retirement there in Victoria, but I know for certain that this episode is going to generate a lot of interest and a lot of questions. Would you be willing to do this again, maybe answer some questions that might come up? Absolutely. Anytime. Uh, and uh, thanks for, for um, including me and, and giving me an opportunity to share some of my thoughts of my experiences. Well, there you have it. 35 very generous minutes with Bill Yearwood. And I hope uh, everyone can just take a moment and appreciate how fortunate we are to have had 35 minutes with Bill and to be able to glean so much wisdom from him, uh, from his experiences in the field. Uh, Because, I mean, Bill doesn't mix words and everything that he has said is from things he has seen with his own eyes and those things had real consequences. So... I'm just so grateful and thankful uh, to have spoken with Bill. I know you guys are going to have a lot of uh, input on this and a lot of questions. And as you heard there, Bill is willing to come back and talk about some of those at a later date. And uh, and for that, I'm, I'm real thankful. So if you have any feedback, any questions, uh, go ahead and email us, info at cardinalaviation.ca. Visit us online, www.cardinalaviation.ca. Or you can uh, check us out on Instagram, at cardinalaviation. Whatever you do, just never stop learning and fly safely because I don't want to see your name on a file on a TSB desk. Let's be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. All right, everyone, be smart, be safe. Talk to you soon.